Welcome everyone to the Hoon. My apologies for lateness. Uh, I um, had some troubles getting into my office. And hello to Peter um, on his way or near uh, somewhere in the north of New Zealand. Is that right? Yeah. Hey Bernard, sorry. I've I, I, I mean because we can make that car car joke as well that we're doing it from the cars. But um, yeah, I, I, it seems to me as though the Friday the Friday rush rush hour in Auckland going north starts at about three and I didn't, didn't expect to be, um, I expected to be sitting where I'm going with a glass of wine in my hand, looking out at the sea and chatting to you, but I'm in the car. But anyway, it's lovely to see you, lovely to see everybody, um, all the attendees, thank you very much. We're, we're gonna get the super professional soon. Oh yes. And no. always be where we're supposed to be when we get there, as it were. Thank, thank you very much everyone for persisting. Now, really Bernard, did you, did, you, did you tell me that your, this, the battery on your scooter ran out today? Oh, yeah. Is this how, why you're late? <laughs> This is me trying to be all urban and um, car free. And so I jumped on my flamingo at the top end of town and the battery ran out <laughs> completely halfway down. So then I had to run around and find another flamingo, which I got there eventually. But that's a, a classic of the um, don't leave it to the last minute and rely on Yeah, so it's a classic of the Bernard Hickey committing himself to slightly more than he than As I've said to you before, Bernard, you're not scalable. That's, that's right. I am not scalable. And luckily for us, we've got Sharon Zollner joining us, Peter. Fantastic. I'll bring in Sharon. Um, uh, Sharon Zollner is the chief economist for the ANZ here in New Zealand. And um, she is about to join us as a panelist. Uh, she's just calling in now. And um, we will have Sharon very shortly. She's just calling in there. Now, uh, I'm here. Ah, uh, hello, Sharon. We can, we can, uh, we, we, can we can hear you. There we and, go. Ah, and there we know we can see you. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you very much for joining the Hoon here on the Kaka today. Um, we um, are going to tack away from the events of the uh, regal kind uh, today, today and talk about um, the global economy and what's happening here uh, because it's been a big week um, for central banks, uh, for the global economy, for the European economy, for prices and I thought we'd bring you in just to give us a sense of um, how it's shaping up uh, in the light of some interesting bits and pieces of data here as well. Um, first off, though, uh, we had um, a big move, in fact, the biggest move in the history of the Eurozone when the European Central Bank put up its main uh, interest rates. Uh, they don't really have an official cash rate. They've got two or three different official cash rates, including a deposit rate, which was 0.0%, and they put it up to 0.75% because they've got some inflation. Tell us about what uh, is happening in Bernard, Europe. Can I just, just introduce me? Because I've actually oh, always been, I haven't met Sharon. And I've been incredibly Hello. impressed with her perspicacity and uh, quality of her forecasts over the last two years. I'm, I'm Peter Bale. I'm a friend of Bernard's and theoretically the co-host of our ridiculous <laughs> session. Sharon, please go ahead. Happy to meet you. And, and oh, thanks for that introduction. It's going to be hard to live up to that. <laughs> please go ahead. Yeah, so Europe, so 75 basis points might seem like a big move. In fact, you know, if you want to calculate it as a percentage change from zero, then it is infinite. Um, but you know, inflation is running, going to head to 10 probably in the Eurozone. So in that context, uh, 
policy rate of 0.75% is hardly, uh, well, it's still deeply negative real interest rates. So clearly they're just getting started. Um, but the challenge for Europe and the UK, it's very similar. Uh, they're facing a massive energy shock. And that is a classic uh, negative supply shock, the kind, the kind that got the world into so much trouble in the 70s, really, because policymakers and politicians have faced very, very nasty trade-offs because those shocks are... Um, very bad for activity and growth because they um, destroy households' purchasing power, among other things, because they they raise inflation. So you're sitting there as the, as the central bank going, well, I've got an inflation target. I need to hit this economy even harder and get people to spend even less. And the government's sitting there saying, we need to support households because they're our voters. And so you've got Liz Truss um, putting aside tens of billions of dollars uh, with actually just parking the question of how they were going to fund that uh, to to give to households while the, while the central bank's trying to hit households harder. So you've got you've got the push me pull you thing. We had it here to some extent with the with the way the fuel tax cut and the while the reserve bank's raising rates, but really just a, a tiny little um, microcosm of what uh, this is happening in a grand scale in Europe. Really nasty choices facing policymakers there. Yeah, it's it's a tough one because as you say, the central bankers are pushing down on the economy at the same time as the governments are looking to hand over uh, literally um, at, at the current rate upwards of a third of a trillion dollars worth of energy subsidies to people who are uh, struggling with higher gas and electricity uh, bills. Uh, is, are there any you know, deep financial is, uh, system pressures in Europe that might burst out? I see that the Swedish economy minister described a Lehman-style moment uh, for um, Europe's electricity markets, and the governments there have moved to uh, lend huge amounts to the big electricity providers who are on the wrong side of the wholesale markets. Are there any risks that um, you know Europe was too late to shut things down, and with the eurozone? Um, putting one price on more than a dozen economies that uh, Europe might head back to those dark days of 2010 and 2011, I think, when they were in trouble. Yeah, well, essentially, the euro project's half-baked. If you've got a fiscal, you've got a currency union with no fiscal union, then basically you've got nothing to bring economies back together. So the issue leading up to that 2012 crisis was that the German economy wasn't doing very well and they're the biggest. So essentially the interest rates were set for them. Uh, but the Southern economies like Spain and Greece were having a party because they had much higher inflation rates. And so their real interest rates were really, really low. And so the interest rates were making the bubbly economies bubblier and the slow economies slower. And the only way you can sort of fix that is through fiscal transfers. But you try telling the Germans that they've got to take the, the Greek government debt onto, onto their... What they don't realise is they already have. The technocrats have done it sneakily through the settlement system, but that's that's a little different from them actually voting for that. So the thing has remained half-baked. And as long as inflation was super low, then the ECB could sellotape it together and pretend what they were doing was inflation targeting buying Italian and Greek bonds to try and, and lower interest rates and get inflation up. But when inflation's heading to 10, your ability to do that and call it monetary policy is severely compromised. And so that is the challenge. Now, if they want a fiscal union or something looks like a fiscal union, they're actually going to have to get a mandate for that from the people. And that's not going to be straightforward. And I see yeah, it's a real, may, may I introduce a, a sort of geopolitical aspect of this too, of course, Sharon, is that, um, I mean, we normally have uh, Professor Sir Robert, Professor Robert Patman, I'll just give him an involuntary knighthood there. Um, 
talking about this when we're talking about you know we had putin yesterday uh in vladivostok saying that you know russia had paid no price for this and you've got matteo salvini this week saying it's time to start negotiations with the with the russians i, I i'm i would be extremely worried about about the public pressure that's going to come to bear on politicians as as these energy supplies get more difficult and the costs of energy energy balloon you know people are going to forget about why we're there and that and that it's all about you know liberation and freedom for um for ukraine don't you think? divide and conquer mm. absolutely cause the maximum economic pain and and destroy the european union unity on the ukraine question and when you look at the amount of pain um that this is going to cause um it's not unrealistic that some politicians could blink you know if they have a very cold winter then Germany is going to have the choice between people freezing to death in their homes or shutting down BASF, one of the world's largest yeah. chemical producers. You know, there's no good choices. There's not enough gas at any price in that scenario. That's right. It's really. I, I was also listening to the, um, the very good, uh, very the head of Scottish Power, which is which is trying to go completely renewables, um, is one of the people in, in the UK who's proposed some of the things that Lin, uh, Liz Trust is starting to do with what looks like a, a set of payments to to um, to all energy consumers, it seems. Um, but I hadn't realized the extent to which the price of energy right across Europe, and particularly in the UK, is governed by the most expensive energy in a sense that so that so the, the, the companies that are producing renewable energy are getting quite a windfall in terms of their own profitability right now because they're producing it at very, very low cost. Um, and you know, the, you've got Liz Trust as well, you know, um, starting fracking again in the UK. It's a very interesting. It's very interesting from the kind of mix of energy that we're going to get to as well. Yeah, unfortunately, of course, there's nothing like a high energy price to send. Um, well, we need high traditional fossil fuel energy prices to persuade people to move to yes. renewables. But if you've got a shortage of energy all out, then what you see is the coal price has gone through the roof because everyone's burning coal, uh, and so we're really taking a big step backwards uh, in, in that regard. And of course, China and Russia are just hoovering up um, Russian oil exports. So. Um, yeah, the, the, there's these sanctions. It's just worth remembering. It's actually quite a tiny proportion of the world's GDP that's imposing them on Russia. You know, China, China and India together are a pretty large market for your energy exports. And it is one of those uh, markets that is truly commoditized and globalized in that it's very hard to push down one of the spigots and stop things. They tend to screw it up somewhere else in the system. Yeah, call 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 Red Adair, as, as somebody said to me the other day. Um, not not that anybody under uh, younger than us knows who Red Adair was. But and, and Sharon, what are the implications for the New Zealand economy of this? Because I think you know I was just zooming up here today, feeling extremely uh, complacent at eighty percent uh, hydropower and all of that. Um, uh, there's got to be some knock-on effects in New Zealand from all this stuff, doesn't it? Yeah, we're fortunate we're um, reasonably isolated. We, we've never built the infrastructure to be able to export our gas. <laughs> so unlike Australia, who, you know, it's like the fact that we export dairy products means the dairy prices go up in our supermarkets when the world dairy price goes up. And similarly, Australian gas prices have gone up because they can export it. So because we can't, um, our gas price has been completely unaffected. Uh, and the oil price has come screaming backwards from its peak of around 125 US dollars a barrel, sitting just a bit over 80 um, at the moment on global growth fears. 
Um, so in that regard, we have been quite insulated. In fact, if you want to be deeply cynical and selfish about it, we win this when food prices go up and, and the increase in grain prices in particular because our animals uh, primarily eat grass. Um, but of course, the other side of the coin is that uh, it, high food prices are terrible for geopolitical stability. So it comes back and bites us uh, one way or, or another. But I think what are the risks, Joan? What are the risks for us for New Zealand? Uh, at the moment, I'd say the bigger risk is not so much the energy prices as the outlook for the Chinese economy mm -hmm. uh, with the combination of their capricious COVID zero whack-a-mole policy plus um, the quite severe policy, uh, housing slowdown that they're, they're facing as a lot of chickens come home from, to roost from the fact that that sector has been used as a way of juicing the economy for decades without any thought to moral hazard. And, and now suddenly, yeah, it's all sort of starting to unravel there. Um, plus their manufacturers, the bullwhip effect of the inventory cycle we've had is ferocious because both retailers and manufacturers all around the world have been stockpiling inventory because of the unreliability of, of supply chains recently. But now they're all looking at it going, well, we might have too many of those, too many of those. And so the orders are going from massive to nothing. And so unemployment's actually um, rising in China, even youth, youth unemployment. I mean, in China, they hardly have any youth, <laughs> but the unemployment rate's nearly 20%. And, and these are extremely highly educated young people as well. And they're not the sort of people you want to have hanging around twiddling their thumbs from a social stability point oh, of view. That's right. And and do um, how is this all affecting the currency? Because on the one hand, you're right, it is starting to press down a bit on food prices. Uh, and... But at the same time, the new the US dollar is very strong against the euro, against the yen, um, and and also against the New Zealand dollar. So there's there's some sort of um, offsetting effects here. We we may see a slowing of uh, demand for some of our agricultural um, products. But on the by the same token, if you're an exporter, you're looking at a sixty cent currency. It looks looks okay. Yeah, so the US dollar is all powerful. And I mean, that's partly a US dollar story that that their Federal Reserve, their central bank has been quite aggressive in raising rates and that's attracting US dollars home. But also when you look around the world, so the euro is facing extremely high inflation and some structural risks. So I don't want to own that. The Japanese yen, the, they seem to be the last true believers that, that printing money has no consequences whatsoever and just are refusing to believe that they need to take their foot off the monetary policy floor. So um, so the yen is, is absolutely tanking. But China has got all these risks that we've just talked about. And the Aussie and New Zealand currencies are under pressure as a proxy for that China risk. So there's really only one winner in that game, and it's the US dollar. And the issue is that an awful lot of commodities are priced in US dollars. China's trying to change that, but but mostly it's still US dollars. So that's making life extremely difficult for the developing world. It's making their imports extremely expensive. And uh, we did get some numbers out of New Zealand um, this week, uh, including the one of the, the most fun economic indicators that uh, I can remember seeing out of New Zealand, the truckometer which is actually a really interesting leading indicator where you take NZTA figures on uh, car and truck movements um, day by day, I suppose, and then work out what it might mean for the economy. This week, we got uh, the latest round in the truckometer numbers, which on the face of it looked like everyone jumped in their trucks and cars and went <laughs> in August. Uh, what's going on? Yeah, so what's quite cool about the heavy traffic index, which is mostly truck movements, a few buses, um, is that it's been actually really reliable through this whole COVID period and through the lockdowns, because um, normally it's a, in normal times, it's a measure of demand. So, you know, how much are, um, are people restocking, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, and it also reflects supply disruptions 
Uh, so I'll be in lockdown <laughs> for, for one thing, uh, but also the shortage of truck drivers is extreme, but it absolutely reflects the shortage of labour all around the, uh, the country. And, and through July, um, there were heaps of workers sick and isolating, similar to when the Omicron first hit. And so um, talking to trucking companies, they're like, well, we just haven't got enough drivers. So therefore, there weren't enough trucks going. Um, but then, of course, the cases in, the, uh, in isolation and actually with COVID started dropping quite quickly through August. And so I think that is probably what the big bounce in the heavy and light traffic has captured. So we've got two months in now of the, of the third quarter, so July tanked, July, August jumped, so another lottery of a quarter for GDP, I would say. Um, but we've actually just finalised our forecast for Q2 GDP and landed on plus 0.4. That's a downgrade from our initial forecast, and the Reserve Bank's on 1.8. So on the face of it, you'd say they're going to get a sudden surprise that the economy's not doing that well, and therefore they'll rethink their hiking plans. But no, <laughs> because basically it's that mix of supply constraints some weaker demand in the in the retail numbers, I would suggest, but the with the demand and the supply side both moving, you can't actually assume that rubbish data is disinflationary. If it's because there's not enough work. You're really talking about the when you're talking about the supply side, they really talk about labour, are you? Primarily, yeah, at the moment, but also shortage of jib would have constrained building, for example. So there's there's other things going on as well there. But you know, that GDP fell in the first quarter, but it's clear that inflation pressures actually intensified during that time. People offshore. They're desperate to believe the New Zealand economy is on its knees and about to collapse because they really want to believe that one year of tightening will do the job and that the Fed's going to stop soon and then they'll start spreaking um, equities again and we'll go back to the good old days where central banks were your friends. Uh, but this economy is not rolling over. Some people are doing it really tough, absolutely, but that mythical median person who may or may not actually exist is doing fine. They've sure. got a good job and their wages are up and their job security is excellent. And, and dare I ask you, um, Sharon, about your outlook for house prices? I mean, not, not to do Bernard's job for him, but you know, could you tell us a little bit about intergenerational theft? Yes, so we're forecasting 15% fall. That's the same as the Reserve Bank. But while two months ago I would have said the risks were tilted to them falling more, I then now see the risks tilted to them, those falls petering out and potentially quite quickly and stopping short of that. And that is not a strong real house price story at all. That is a story of the wage and price level doing more of the adjustments so that nominal house prices need to do less. In short, we're starting to think inflation is going to hold up longer and that the silver lining of that is that it can get you out of corners you've painted yourselves into. It greases the wheels of relative price adjustments, and we certainly need a relative price adjustment in house. Are, are we going to just, I, I know you, we, you're not allowed to give us investment advice, but we'd like it, of course, uh, and, and Bernard most definitely isn't, uh, and, and he and I know a little bit about each other's share portfolios, so um, <laughs> neither of us are qualified to give anybody advice, to, you know, um, but are we going to see uh, interest rates on deposits rise significantly i was just you know when we're talking about the euro i um just got a note from a from a bank i have in the, in, in europe saying that they're no longer going to charge me for having more <laughs> than two thousand euros in an account which i've been studiously trying to avoid uh they're actually going to pay me a tiny amount are we going to start seeing banks put up deposit interest rates it happened for the last year i did put up their term deposit rates last week no they're, they're creeping steadily higher um, you can get almost four percent now. This is this is tremendously exciting. It's a it's a minus three percent real return. <laughs> so yeah, those they're still not great returns, but in nominal terms at least, yeah, they're. they're Are you saying I should just go and buy that jet ski now? <laughs> yeah. yeah, there were a lot of jet skis sold during the pandemic. Yeah, I think we all tried to recreate holidays here at home. Yeah. It seems yeah, a lot Did of puppies you? as well. 
jet skis and air fryers, I think, uh, just not at the same time in the same place. Um, but I'm I'm curious, finally, um, Sharon, to let you go for the weekend. Uh, we had another couple of speeches from Fed people uh, this week, and the sort of core issue at the heart of the global economy and of asset values all around the world is, uh, is the Fed going to have to hike much more than the markets expect? And basically, is the Fed going to steer the markets back down again? And the jury's still out on it, I suppose. But there's been some interesting noise. The Fed seemed to be talking a good hawkish game. And we had a paper out this week, which one senior figure called the scariest paper, uh, economic paper <laughs> this year, which essentially said that the Fed might have to push unemployment in the United States up to six and a half to seven and a half percent to actually get inflation down. What's your view on whether the uh, the markets versus the Fed um, battle will, who, who might win that one? Well, there's a saying in financial markets, don't fight the Fed. And that's exactly what the market has been doing. They've been very reluctant to believe that central banks mean what they say. They want to believe that central banks will just decide that the growth and employment cost is too high and, and stop trying to get inflation to where it's supposed to be, forgetting that central banks don't have the ability to decide that. They've got their targets and their mandates and they just have to do it. Of course, whether the politicians will let them do it, whether inflation targeting will survive this whole episode is very much a live question. Um, but central banks certainly just have to do what they've got to do in the meantime, at least. And so the issue has been that they haven't really wanted to sound like the bad guys. So they've spent years through the pandemic saying, you know, here, here, in, here in New Zealand, uh, they argued that, you know, of course, it was unfortunate we were having this explosion of wealth inequality, but it was necessary to prevent an explosion of income inequality through a sharp rise in unemployment. But the fact is now the Reserve Bank's forecasts show the unemployment rate rising to 5%, and that may or may not be right, but it can quite reasonably be interpreted as their current best estimate of what unemployment needs to do to head off the risk of a wage price spiral. That's not a happy story. It's a it's a take your medicine now to save us in the long run story, but that medicine is not evenly distributed. Of course, it is always the most vulnerable people in an economy who, who bear the brunt of recessions or slowdowns. It seems to me the bigger picture long run for central banks and global economies is will these central banks manage to get through this without having their independence stripped from them? Uh, given what well, this trust already wants to review the remit of the Bank of England and, and is asking whether it should be independent. It is just worth remembering that inflation targeting and indeed central bank independence was made up by politicians because it was a vote winner at the time. Because the public, here. I mean, you could argue we're, we're the godfathers of the damn thing. Or the public was the death of inflation. That was the most popular policy they could introduce at the time. That may or may not be true at, at some point in the future. So certainly yeah. if you saw anything like central banks introducing intermediate inflation targets, um, then that would be a sign that, <laughs> that you know, the 2% inflation target is, is um, done and dusted. Um, but those pressures are actually not likely to emerge in, in New Zealand, so much as in countries with very, very high government debt. Yeah, when your so government may I ask you about that for the, from the UK point of view, mm -hmm. partly for, for self-interest, I and mean, you've got 99% of GDP in, in government borrowing. Um, you've got this, this pound very, very weak, which is presumably, uh, this is a question, not just because of the US dollar strength. I, I, I saw 
in the FT, Rupert Pennant Ray, the former deputy governor of the Bank of England, saying that this was a um, a kind of targeted sell-off of all UK assets, by, all UK asset classes by international investors. I mean, what's what's the outlook there? Do you think? Well, that's the issue. And Liz Trust just completely dodged the question when she was asked how they were going to fund this, going, oh, yeah, talk to my new Chancellor of the Exchequer, he'll tell you. Um, but it's like tens of billions of dollars and um, in, a, in a country where the inflation rate is looking like it's going to be high for a long time. So there's a lot of pressure on, on bond yields already. And then, of course, the higher your debt, those higher interest rates start chewing up a larger chunk of your budget and then it can all unravel actually quite quickly and so people are starting to look a little bit sideways at the UK and and because she wants to cut taxes as well which will make an even bigger hole in the deficit and, and so this whole idea that you can run and I know Bernard you're not going to like this but this whole idea that you can run very very large government deficits without any consequences and just pay for them with printing money and get away with it indefinitely is really starting to hit the wall at the moment and, and the UK is one example of where because of the pressures that and this horrible shock they're going through is is bringing about that the limits to that kind of policy are going to become evident that if you keep printing money it's going to boost inflation expectations which will boost bond yields which will boost your government borrowing costs which will make it harder for you to meet your budget which will increase your deficit and and it just goes quite quite quickly and so people are starting to look a little bit sideways at, at the UK and in particular Liz Truss's um, lending plans for that reason so yeah, she's got these ideas, but the bond market can may or may not cooperate with what she wants to do. Yes, well, we'll see whether the bond vigilantes make a uh, a comeback. Um, I must say that they're they've been euthanized for a long time. They're going to have someone's going to have to give them a good prod. Um, Sharon Azolna from ANZ, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Sharon. Was, you, 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 were, you are still perspicacious and um, and incredibly <laughs> accurate in your forecast. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful to see you. Thanks. Uh, so, um, Peter, um, for, for, for a brief moment there, it sounded like you owned a bank in Europe, but actually, no, your bank. I, I wish I did. Yeah, <laughs> I wish I did. No, no, it is. It's a, it's a, it's a bank that I have some, some money in that they've been charging me for. You know, I get a little alert and it says your euro account is up, has gone over two thousand euros or something. We're now going to charge you. You know. For, for, for depositing with us. So you're a high net worth individual. That oh, gigantic. A gigantic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah that, that is fascinating, though, because what actually happened this week is that the deposit rate that the European Central Bank sets, which was 0.0%, literally 0. Yeah, yeah. 0. 0. Um, that's that's yeah. why they're not charging me anymore. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so there was a big piece of news this week. I know other people are talking about other things. But for, for, for me, that uh, plus what the Fed is doing and uh, this is essential contest between the markets and the Fed to see who will blink first and whether or not politicians versus uh, central banks. Well, like, like I said also, Bernard, we've got this amazing geopolitical thing where you know Vladimir Putin does not um, face any domestic political opposition and let, let alone any domestic political upset. You know, the, 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 there is no, he, he does not have this pressure and his determination to kind of wait all this out is, is really remarkable. And um, you're right in that he doesn't have to worry about getting elected as, as um, Xi Jinping doesn't have to worry about mm. getting re-elected. And as it turns out, for him, for Russia, the um, increase in the oil price has actually more than offset the cut Absolutely. in gas revenues to the point where Russia 
Russia's, Russia's ruble is now higher than it was before the start of the war. Yeah, which is beyond belief. And I, I think so. A couple of interesting things, I think, Bernard, we, we often talk about the, um, you know, I'm in the driver's seat, of course, here rather than the armchair, my armchair smoking a pipe, thinking about the uh, Kharkiv and Kershaw fronts. But, you know, we're seeing the Russians having their asses handed to them by the Ukrainians at the moment well, it's the uh, in the field. Right, and, yeah. and the and the, the but the difficulty is he can continue throwing more and more and more resources at that. It does look as though this, the, you know, the Russian, I mean, I would love to know what the American assessment is currently of the uh, wherewithal and preparedness and skills of the Russian army, because it seems, you know, in a terrible state, they haven't gone for full, um, a, a full draft yet, but, you know, they're, they're, they're bringing people my age and, and your age into, into battle. Uh, and we saw this week, you know, again, this fantastic thing that we've seen since February, really, of US intelligence just going blah and releasing quite remarkable information that they may well not have not have done in the past. You know, if you remember, you know, the, the forecasts about Russian, um, Russian invasion was incredibly accurate. Mm. This idea that Russia is now buying artillery shells and rockets from North Korea is, is a pretty extraordinary step to have to take. Meanwhile, China has not delivered, it would appear, anything. No, so, you know, that's a very interesting, you know, I, I think that, you know, you and I have done this before when we've worked in other places. The, I always, it's always fascinating to me when the reality of geopolitics, particularly in a conflict, come hard up against the economic realities. So you've got, you know, a European energy crisis, which is driven by a war, driven then by inflation, US interest rates. It's a perfect storm, and Putin is apart from the military side, rather in rather a strong position to ride it out, I'm afraid. Yeah. And um, when we talk about, you know, war and um, war economies, and the discussion with Sharon's pretty um, accurate in that essentially we're going into an era where governments are deciding big things about how to allocate resources in mm. ways takes the takes them out of the hands of markets so That's right. we've seen the european union decide this week to effectively um uh cap uh consumer electricity prices and impose windfall taxes on the winners out of this those as you pointed out the renewable energy producers whose costs are fixed and low and are making out like bandits mm. Not to mention the fossil fuel producers. Um, I mean, if you're the um, profit and loss analyst at um, Saudi Aramco, you must be thinking. Uh, yeah. Did you see? Did you see today as well? OPEC announced a cut in oil in oil output of 100,000 barrels, which exactly takes off the tiny 100,000 100,000 barrels that they added after um, Joe Biden went cap in hand to Mohammed bin Salman. So Mohammed bin Salman is stepping up a gigantic. Oil, oil platform shaped finger to the United States. Yeah, and uh, seems to be getting getting away with it. Um, and that's the, the thing that strikes me about Liz Trust this week. We sort of knew she'd do this, but she came out and basically said, uh, "I'm a, a right wing free market type, but what I'm mm. going to do is hand over to uh, British energy companies 150 billion dollars of freshly printed British money." Uh, to uh, make sure that I win the votes of middle England and at the same time uh, decided to restart fracking uh, mm. and, and um, has essentially given the big finger to the to the whole idea of getting to net zero. They've launched a review and yep. net zero is affordable. <clears throat> and 
the whole and they appointed Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's a climate skeptic, as the energy minister. Just extraordinary, and no election there until twenty twenty four. Probably, probably. Yeah, I mean, I think Bernard. It's, it's it's you know, much as I think Liz Truss is a, is is a little bit odd and crazy. Um, you know, it, it is an interesting group of people she, she's got around. Acquiring Kwarteng, the new chancellor, is a kind of interesting character. Although he spent most of the last two years apologising for for um for Boris Johnson and being forced into ever more hum humiliating radio uh, television appearances. But I think you are going to see a kind of uh, Friedmanite redrawing of the um, realm of politics in the UK, and it'll be done very quickly. I think there's going to be some very short, sharp shocks uh, that are going to be quite bold. So I, 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 I you know, not, none of it may work, um, but I think I think it's going to be extremely bold. Mm, let's, um, so she fancies herself as a bit of a Margaret Thatcher, I, I must say, without the having done the hard work that Thatcher did, and uh, having the um, political... Without the elocution lessons either. That's right. Teeth. Yeah, that's right. So um, one, one to watch. I mean, um, it must have been extraordinary time in Britain over the last week or two, as the British establishment realised they were about to lose... Yeah, um, well, I think I've told you, Bernard, that I do a lot of... I do a lot of um, you know, doom scrolling, and I'll wake up at night and look at look at the papers. And if you read the Guardian, you, it does give the impression that the entire country is on fire. When, of course, actually now it is pretty much. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that our um, subscribers have pointed out to me regularly and rightly mm -hmm. over the last week or so was this amazing series of comments by Emmanuel Macron a couple of yeah. weeks ago to his cabinet as they came back from their big long summer break, which the French are wonderful at doing. He sat them down and basically read them the right act about how the world was running out of resources, mm. that it had reached a tipping point, and that um, we were now going to enter an era of um, restraint after a long period of abundance. And um, I don't know if Mike Joy is on the um, call here, as he has been in the past, uh, but it is an amazing time when the establishment, if you like, of um, uh, market economies are now starting to say things like, you know, how about we reduce GDP? How about yes, we yes, yes, which is which is you know tell tell that to tell that to somebody in India, tell it to the yeah. Chinese. You know, I, it's not going to happen. And I, I I keep I keep thinking about this. I mean, even though there's, a, there's an extraordinary environmental report out today about five tipping points that we're 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 approaching. Um, you know, we're approaching in the in the climate. You know, these these countries are still, uh, you know, d desperate for growth. I, I was also really struck, Bernard, this week with the Apple announcement that the many of the first phones that are being released in the Apple 14 release have have in fact been manufactured in India, and it's the first time they've mm. put Indian manufactured phones into the global supply chain in that way. And it, again, it's a reflection of of people trying to reduce, particularly people like Apple, trying to reduce their their dependency on the um, on the Chinese and on China. And it is interesting too, this is a milestone that I think uh, I should have mentioned to everyone, but in the last couple of months, Apple has surpassed mm. Android as the biggest mobile phone system in the United States, which for a long time, Apple was the, you know, 10, 15% market mm. share company. And I, I do wonder whether Android, which was reliant a lot on the Chinese phone manufacturers distributing mm. the platform very cheaply around the world, 
Uh, and now there are, you know, real doubts about <laughs> Huawei, for example, and <laughs> other um, uh, Chinese platforms, TikTok. There is talk about America banning t- TikTok in some form or another. Whether Apple, as the American um, uh, company, and which you're right, is starting to pivot out of China into Vietnam and India and the likes, whether you know we're we're um, we're all living in Apple's world at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. But I, I think also there's a I, I called it out in my spin-off thing this week. Um, Xi Jinping is taking his first uh, international trip for a thousand days since since before COVID. He's going to Kazakhstan. Uh, and we'll meet we'll meet Vladimir Putin then, and he's done he's doing this ahead of I think it's October the twenty third is the is the date that's been called for the twentieth Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. You know this is going to be a very interesting month for kind of where China goes next, where Xi Jinping goes next, whether he in fact does swing behind Putin, which I can't quite imagine. It's a very very interesting sort of next month to to follow to 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 be to be you know, reading my stuff, reading your stuff and feeling just getting a little bit ahead of, of the potential surprises and shocks. Because uh, I remember when uh, uh, it must have been t- two, two uh, Congresses ago, nearly 10 years ago, uh, I was expecting, you know, everybody was expecting Xi, Xi Jinping to open up, that, that it would accelerate the opening of China and precisely the opposite has happened. And so I think I think this run up to this to the to the Chinese uh, Party Congress in October is going to be a very very delicate and interesting period that we should all keep an keep an eye out. And we got some news on the domestic front there on that um, this week with this intervention from John Key. And yeah, he came out with a very pro Chinese um, interview with the Australian Financial Review and basically said. You know, we're in no position to tell China what to do. You, you didn't go full Jerry Brownlee and say that, you know, it was just the same as how we treated mm-hmm. it, um, temporary work visa migrants in New Zealand. But certainly uh, it, it, really, it really does, does um, put the National Party on a different plane to other conservative parties around the world. Yeah, yeah, no, it is really, somebody suggested to me the other day, and it was somebody you and I know who's, who's been on the show, was, was saying that they think John Key is kind of stuck in this era when he was big in China, when he considered she a friend, all of that sort of thing, that, that John Key's ideas about where China's at are about six or eight years out of date. Yeah, which is surprising because he's the director of... Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he's right. But, yeah. And um, he is pretty engaged to... Uh, and, it, I think, is becoming a problem for National that uh, it has yet to um, challenge itself or move on from the sort of glory days of 2009 to 2016 or so when uh, we had this benign and constantly growing and apparently yes. boundless relationship with China, which really Xi Jinping is the key difference there. And that's what surprised me about Key's comments, saying that he didn't think he was any, uh, Xi Jinping was any different to the previous Chinese leaders, which, you know, it's just not what uh, anyone who's watching China mm. closely would say. Um, yeah. And you're, uh, I just wanted to sort of, as we, as we head towards the end, um, talk well, I thought we might also t- t- close off. Well, you, 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 want, you, want to talk, you tell me what you want to talk about, because I could tell you a couple of moderately amusing little stories about having met the Queen. I'm very interested in that, but before mm. we do, I would love to um, highlight a a video that you pointed to me, and that is in your excellent... oh the Macron the Macron yeah. Zelensky one the ex- yeah, yeah. is not amazing 
I, I, I was just stunned at it. And thank you for linking it to me. And I'm about to put into the comment stream the um, uh, your uh, weekly email, which highlights it as well and talks about a lot of the things we've talked about on today's. Um, I, I do also recommend buying this week some North and South, which has an excellent piece by by, by somebody really closely related to me, i.e. me, with uh, <laughs> David Kilcullen, the, the military strategic an analyst. Um, I think people would find that that really interesting, and it's at a news news uh, at a um, newsstand near you. Yeah, no, there's there's a great bunch of articles um, this week in North and South. They're on fire at the moment. Now, this video was of Emmanuel Macron, one of those sort of moments of history with a fly on the wall with a 4K camera. Um, where uh, this was the first call between Macron and Zelensky in those first moments when the Russians were February the 24th, yeah. And and it's are you going to play it play it so that we can? I can try. Um, um, perhaps you can set set up the scene for our. Yeah, well, it's you know, so they're talking. That Macron's got all his all his officials around him, and it's really critical to remember how embarrassed Macron had been by. Uh, by Putin going to Moscow, you know, he went to, went to Moscow, sat at the end of that ridiculous um, table, uh, and was lied to by Macron, by uh, by Putin completely. But Macron has not given up, you know, with the odd bit of engagement. He's spoken to to Putin, I think, officially twice uh, since since February. And I do, I you know, I think there is, it's critical that that lines of communication are somehow maintained. I'm also. Very interested in what Guterres, the uh, United United Nations um, uh, Secretary General, is doing, which seems to me to be not very much. But maybe he's doing something behind the scenes. Um, and I also want to just actually, while we're on the subject of the UN, before you pull it up, Bernard, somebody in a in a thing that I do for spinoff was was criticising the IAEA for its um, for not blaming the Ukrainians for uh, shelling the uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power station. And it's very important because the IEA made it made absolutely explicit that they wouldn't be blaming anybody for anything because their whole modus operandi is to keep the thing safe. On the other hand, there was a fabulous video of Russian um, military people telling that telling the um, telling the IAEA inspectors that a missile had gone 180 degrees coming from the Ukraine, bent round and come in from the from the Russian side. Uh, and hit the hit the nuclear power nuclear power station in order to make it look as though it was the Russians. Those cunning Ukrainians. <laughs> amazing drones. Well, here, here's this amazing video. I've got it up here. I'm just going to share it now. And uh, it is. Let's just try this here. Uh, here we go. And uh, let's play it. And special forces everywhere in Kiev. Isn't that interesting, Bernard? A phrase, "total war." Okay. And and uh, in effect, that was the moment the world changed. When yeah, and, and also in that, Zelensky says says to, to you know, could you please get on to Putin? This you know, we need to keep talking to him. So the idea that Zelensky was against talking is is 
you know, given is disabused by that. So should we just talk briefly about the Queen? Yes. I, 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 you know, Queen, Peter. Oh yeah, several times. Well, it, it, well, she often says how often you know she'd met me. <laughs> but the, you know, this there, there has been a certain tidal wave of bollocks uh, about about you know her death. I mean, she was ninety six. What an amazing thing it was to do to do the swearing in of trust and the swearing at uh, Boris Johnson this week. Um, you know, she's ninety six. This is not a surprise, but it is an extraordinary sort of generational passing. And I I thought that the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, captured it very, very elegantly today. And to hear her, to hear her initially do it in Toreo was, I thought, really deft and, and really elegant. Yes, and uh, sometimes our politicians can, can come out and... Well, she is particularly good at capturing the moment, as we, as we all know. So, yeah, so, you know, and also we've now got King's Councils. As, as Champfi, our friend, was joking today, it's now going to be renamed King Street, but it still won't have any shops in it in Auckland. Uh, and our skiing capital will, will, be, will be called uh, King's Town. But, yeah, I, I met the Queen twice at... Uh, one was um, uh, on the Britannia in Adelaide, after she had sailed around from, uh, I think it was Melbourne, to witness to witness uh, Haley's comet at sea, and so we had a little bit a little bit of a chat about that. And I may have mentioned the while she was at sea, um, you know, the, the 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 British press were sitting in a spa pool in Adelaide, where I may have been present as well, making up stories which they then published, including that three that, that several members of the IRA had been arrested at Sydney Airport on the way to kill the Queen. When in fact it was members of the Aer Lingus Musical Society had arrived in Australia, um, and the second time I met her was was kind of equally interesting, which was at a Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Cyprus, and I reminded her about the the Haley's Comet thing, which of course she remembered very well, and that again was on the back of the at a cocktail party for media uh, on the back of the Britannia. Um, yeah, so the Britannia is gone, long gone, unfortunately. Um, and you know, it is a, it is. That was one of the moments in public where she actually appeared to show some real emotion when that was yeah. um, signed off the Britannia. Yeah. No, but it is it is such an interesting phase and a, and a really important passing of uh, you know somebody who's been been there all of our lives. Certainly, neither of us are, are old enough to to remember you know another monarch. But it is it's you know I think we have to be mindful of the of of her age and and sort of honor that and not go into the sort of paroxysms of of um of old you know old people dying but that the child's arrival is also going to be shocking and interesting um uh so simon jenkins who i who i think is possibly one of the laziest columnists ever wrote quite a good quite a good column in the in the guardian today about that pointing out that you know charles is, is just too provocative to shut up now and it will be a, a, a very um, dramatic shift. You know, we, we, I don't know whether you remember when they, the, the British government released the spider letters, which oh, yeah. was this whole parcel of sort of mad things um, that Charles was promoting, and, you know, everything from, uh, from um, uh, fake medicine to, to, to the environment, where, of course, he's been right. You know, he's been right about the environment. Yeah, I mean, you can't imagine uh, the Queen saying those sorts of things um, in public. And her, uh, her, her role, and she saw it as her role, was to mm. be the uh, independent, not even an arbiter, but as the, uh, the person who made sure that 
the head of state role didn't get in the way of um, politics and politicians. And mm. she's had so many crises at, in her governments over the years. And that that sheer process of uh, transmitting power from one person to another, from one party to another, we all take for granted now, in large part, yes. her role in it. Um, I know there's been the odd hiccup here and there. We had, of course, in Australia when Gough Whitlam went, but on the whole, um, she has been the common factor um, guarding and ensuring safe uh, transitions of power in uh, Westminster-style democracies. And as we've, mm. as we've discovered in the United States, it's not always something we should take for granted. And um, That's right. we have to hope that Charles is, um, doesn't get... Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's a fantastic moment to reflect on the Commonwealth. It'll be a moment where... Australia and perhaps New Zealand will reflect again on, on becoming a republic. Um, you know, it's a very interesting, it's a very, very interesting transition and phase. And because of the role of the Crown in the treaty relationship, mm. one of the um, comments from our politicians that I, I found quite um, uh, affecting was from Wairi Waititi, the um, co-leader yeah. Māori, who said, quote, we all mourn the passing of this ariki. The huge vacuum left will cause debate. But in this time of grief and loss, we can only support her whānau and mokopuna as they grieve and heal. She was a constant across three generations, an anchor in a rapidly changing globe. Yeah, uh, it was, that was really beautiful, wasn't it? I, I also listened to Tiffany O'Regan, uh, who, was, who was equally... Um, sort of effective on that. And I hadn't realized that the queen, the only, I may misdescribe this, but I believe the only uh, piece of legislation in New Zealand that the queen has literally signed herself was the Waikato settlement in, in the mid nineties, which Tiffany mentioned today. Um, and, you know, and, and, and if you listen to some of the things that Radio New Zealand did quite a nice job of this, the queen was very conscious and commented frequently about the potential example uh, that New Zealand could hold hold to the rest of the Commonwealth and the world about coming up with a, a creative and intelligent settlement with um, its indigenous people. And um, it will be interesting. One of the reasons that I think a republic is much less likely in New Zealand than it is in Australia, mm. that the role of the Crown is so important in the treaty and to... That's a very good point, yeah. To destabilise that would um, cause so much more grief than just the whole business of having an elected head of state um, that was, you know, totally independent from the political scene here. Mm. Peter, it's been wonderful to do this. Thank um, you, Bernard. I'm, I'm so sorry to have had to do it from the, from the car car. But, oh, no. uh, <laughs> and my apologies again for um, the late start, but actually that was one of the best tunes we've ever had in terms of going deep into certain areas that... Um, well, I've always, I've always found Sharon Zollner one of the... I mean, you know, oh, yeah. she's, she, she's very, very thoughtful, it seems to me. Yeah, no, that was an excellent session. Well, have a safe um, uh, weekend, uh, Peter, and we'll thank you, Bernard. I'm we'll just off to cook. I'm, I'm just off to cook uh, uh, blue cod in panko crumbs with my triple cooked uh, Heston Blumenthal chips for my brother. See, that's that's just that's just mean. That is. That's just yeah, mean. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very if you're much. lucky, if you're lucky, you might get something similar on Sunday. Ah, absolutely. Looking forward to All it. All right. See you soon. Thank, thank you, you everybody. I know everyone. See you later. Bye bye. bye, -bye.